Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just nine. $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What's going on, Z-Pack? It's your boy ZDogMD. I am doing something totally different today. The boys are off and I'm in the studio. I was recording some vocals for, Ooh, I'm a doctor just for dicks now. And I thought, well, while I'm being ridiculous and absurd and really giving a tribute to our urology colleagues, an, un, an unasked for tribute to our urology colleagues. I thought, you know what? Let's do a show real quick, just top of my head, rant about stuff I've been interested in recently that has to do with Health 3.0, which we talk about a lot on the show, but bears some revisiting because we really haven't talked about it properly in a while. And there's new sort of, uh, you know, to quote the big Lebowski, new shit has come to light, man. And it's kind of influenced my thinking on healthcare and how it's going to emerge in its 3.0 version. And I want to talk to you guys about it. And I want to do it in a way that's suitable for podcast listeners. So hence the big mic in my face and the headphones. And also for people who consume the content on Facebook. And just a quick bit of housekeeping. If you do listen on a podcast and it's available on iTunes and SoundCloud and Stitcher and on ZDogMD.com, we archive all this stuff. So you can just click to that website and find all the episodes and all the means by which you may consume them. If you listen on the podcast, it would be great if you could go onto iTunes's podcast app, look up Incident Report, which is our podcast, and rate and review it. It really helps us a lot. And share it with other people. Uh, and in the show notes for the podcast, I'll give you a way that you can connect with me by email to leave comments and feedback because people on Facebook already know they can private message me and I read all the comments. I don't respond to them all because there's too many, but um, I do read them all. And also they can leave comments right there on the video. So if you watch on Facebook, my ask is become a supporter of the show, $4.99 a month, and you get private conversations that we have that are really off the rails. Uh, ask any of our current uh, you know, 2,500-odd supporters, and they'll tell you it's a tribe like no other. We get down in the weeds, and we treat each other with love and respect and really try to figure out how we're going to fix healthcare together while having a lot of fun. And soon, this month... Uh, continuing education credits are going to be available only to supporters of the show. So in other words, you may watch this show and it may be CME certified for, you know, half a unit or a whole unit of an hour, depending on how long it is. And then what you would do is supporters would get a special password where they log into Physician Weekly's site and are able to actually do a quick post test and a feedback thing. And then they get a certificate. And it's going to be definitely available for doctors and nurses, and probably for a lot of others, we're still working out the details with our partners on that. So 
become a supporter because that's a great way to use your hospital's CME money to actually be a part of our tribe and help us and also get your learn on and your CE credits because y'all know CME is boring as fudge, right? By the way, they told me I'm not allowed to curse on the CME shows. They say that's a no-no. And I was like, fuck all y'all because I'm a, well, apparently I can't. So I apologize about the lack of cursing. For those who've yelled at me for cursing, fuck all y'all. And today I want to talk about, just get right into the show because I make this stuff up as I go, but it's based on my recent reading and experience in uh, the space of anti-fragility. So this is a Nassim Taleb concept and whatever you think of Taleb, he's one of those guys who kind of predicted the financial crisis because he said our banking system is fragile as opposed to anti-fragile. Let me define a few quick terms and then we'll relate it to healthcare and what's emerging. So follow me on this journey because I'm trying to connect these dots and you can come along and tell me if I'm crazy. So some things are fragile, like uh, a wine glass. If you drop it, if you stress it, right, and, and, and it breaks, it's done. It does not get better when you stress it. It doesn't get stronger. It grows not a whit from you fucking around with it. It just breaks and it's done. So that's fragile. Nassim Taleb speculated that our banking system had never been tested with proper stress prior to the financial crisis. And when it was stressed, it broke. So it was set up in a fragile way. Now we wanna think about healthcare in this standard, okay? So keep this in your mind. So the second sort of possibility is that you're resilient. So, you know, when you give kids a sippy cup, it's usually made of plastic because you know when they drop it, it is not gonna shatter. It is gonna resist destruction. So that's resilient. And they always talk about you know physicians and healthcare uh, professionals trying to be resilient in the face of a difficult system and learning resiliency. Resiliency says that you will survive an insult and not be damaged by it, but you will not necessarily get stronger from it. In other words, you're not gonna grow from it. You're not gonna, you know, that which injures you will just not kill you, but it will not make you stronger. That's resiliency. So there are a lot of systems that are resilient uh, and they, they, they resist a lot of damage, but they don't necessarily get stronger from adversity. I wonder where healthcare is in that so far. Is healthcare fragile? In other words, if we stress the healthcare system, which we have been doing for decades, does it fall apart? I would argue no, it doesn't just shatter. The question is, is it resilient? Does it get, does it change? Does it evolve in response to stress? Or does it, does it, um, just stay the same? And the answer is, well, it hasn't really. It's, it's, it's quite resilient. In other words, it's hard to knock it down, but at the same time, it does evolve and change. And we all know this, because we're gonna talk about the evolution from health 1.0 to health 2.0 to health 3.0, which is emerging. How we might accelerate that, how we might understand it, and how it relates to our own practice. So when you talk about resiliency, you're talking about resisting change. Now, the third option is anti-fragility. And this is a term that Taleb made up that basically says that uh, stressing the system actually causes it to become stronger, to grow and to evolve. Organisms are like this. Many organisms are like this. They evolve under uh, uh, environmental stress and pressure. Selection pressure causes them to change, evolve, get stronger and more adapted to the environment that they're in. Now, 
Jonathan Haidt and others in their recent work have said that, argued that children are by their nature anti-fragile creatures. In other words, they grow when they're stressed. So if you take a young child within the capacity of whatever their stage of development is, if you give them you know, free play and you let them go and kind of take a little bit of risk within the parameters of what age they are and so on, they will grow and learn from that risk taking and they will get stronger. You can teach them skills within their capacity, grow their capacity, and then they develop self-esteem that isn't artificial. It isn't due to participation trophies and it isn't due to other bullshit that, you know, <laughs> that that we've been doing to our latest generations. And as a result, they grow self-esteem from their own growth of competence and capacity, from their own risk-taking, from their own unsupervised free play, from their own uh, anti-fragility in, in the face of challenge. Now, let's distinguish that from unhealthy, toxic stress and challenge. So when you have a child and you overtax them beyond their capacity consistently, bullying that's consistent, that's the result of a power differential with the threat of violence every single day, sexual abuse, physical abuse, food insecurity, economic insecurity, violence. When you do that to children, okay, you are going beyond the bounds of anti-fragility and, and, and growth, and you may just be butting up against resilience. In other words, they don't get destroyed, but they're definitely damaged. And if you push them hard enough, you may actually get them into the fragile territory where they've broken. And we know that adverse childhood experiences over time, sustained toxic stress, leads to terrible adult outcomes, permanent changes in the brain, cortisol levels high, stress hormones high, hypertension, diabetes, heart disease as adults, um, suffering from mental health uh, problems, depression, anxiety, suicide, all those things. So we know you can overdo that with children, right? But at, at the fundamental basis, the argument is that children are anti-fragile. If you deprive them of proper challenges and stress, they will not grow. And then what happens is you cultivate a child that becomes fragile. In other words, you you say, you know, we're gonna keep you safe from everything and you know, you really shouldn't interact with strangers at all and you shouldn't under you shouldn't go out on your own without supervision and you should be protected from speech that harms you or or, or injures your emotions and um, you know, peanut allergies, you know, we, we should keep you safe from peanuts. Now look, see, this is a great example. What happens when you do that? Let's look at peanut allergies. So over the years, there was this mistaken impression that in order to prevent peanut allergies, you kept kids away from the challenge of that particular antigen. So pregnant women weren't supposed to eat peanuts, young uh, infants um, as they're starting to take solids aren't are supposed to avoid peanuts. And what do we have? A rapid rise in peanut allergies. And recent data shows that when you take people who are at risk for allergies and you actually expose them early before they've developed allergies to peanuts, only 3% of that group gets peanut allergies, whereas 17% of the avoidance group got peanut allergies. And Haidt talks about this in his book. The idea being that the immune system in a child is anti-fragile. It needs challenges. It needs to be provoked. That's why vaccines work. It needs to be pushed in order to grow and adapt and respond. And when you deprive it, it becomes fragile. So when you deprive children of peanuts as young kids, the potentiality is that they now are very fragile when it comes to peanuts. You cannot even be on a plane with someone eating peanuts or they may have a, re a fatal reaction. And these are real reactions. 
and they're terrible. And the question is, have we contributed to this by treating children as if they are fragile, thereby making them fragile, instead of treating them as anti-fragile? Now, how might this idea of anti-fragility, which is a common characteristic of organisms, of living creatures, of evolving creatures, how might it apply to medicine, healthcare? I think it helps to think about kind of how it's applied to society first, and then we can make the parallel. And I, I was thinking about this watching Rogan and John Haidt talk about this stuff a little, and it triggered me to think about uh, some of these issues in, a, in healthcare terms. So, and, and this goes back to other stuff we've talked about with uh, integral theory and, and how, you know, uh, not only individuals, but societies go through these stages of development. And it kind of works like this. And, and again, this relates to the anti-fragility of human systems. You may have a stage where like a, the majority of humans alive believe, you know, in a mythic magic kind of thinking. So in other words, there's a all-powerful God who controls everything. If we pray to this God um, in a magical way, things will happen for us and structures of authority are based on this mythic magic hierarchy and man is at the bottom of it. Okay, so that's one structure. Now, in any given sort of socio-technological, philosophical structure, you start out with, okay, that's the thing, and people start realizing, yeah, this works, this model works, and they start really adopting it, the majority of humans adopt it, and then you start running into the limitations of that particular structure. So the system starts getting challenged with problems. So in a mythic magic hierarchical system where say the Catholic Church is at the top of everything, you're starting to notice abuse, you're starting to notice so humans are being um, oppressed at the bottom of these you know, dominance hierarchies and so on, and so what ends up happening is some people start to respond to these problems, these stresses on the system by revolting. And whether you have, you know, you know, uh, Martin Luther taping up the whatever, however many things to the wall of the church, I forget the exact story because I'm a dummy, or you have some response that then triggers instability in the current system. And then the slow emergence in fits and starts in an overlapping wave with the current system of a new system. Let's say it's a capital, you know, capitalism achievement mindset where it's now it's really, you know, it's really about, it's not so much about obeying this hierarchy, it's about a competence hierarchy where individuals have to compete and move up uh, the rungs that way. And that's capitalism. So that was America for quite a bit of the mid 20th century really kind of saying, okay, and we're gonna have these big corporations and we're gonna compete and we're gonna um, try to make money and it's gonna be a meritocracy and so on and so forth. And that was a system that then dominates. And then as an anti-fragile system, some of the stressors on that system are inequality that starts to emerge. When people who are denied the opportunity to compete, so in uh, the 20th century, a good, great example are women and minorities. So African-Americans, et cetera, were, it was codified in law. They couldn't vote. They couldn't you know, uh, drink out of the same fountains as white people. These kind of things then created a stress on the system. Since the system was anti-fragile, responses started to happen. You started getting civil rights movement, uh, women's rights movements, et cetera. And then you have an appropriate response where now the overlapping waves start to form with a new emergent system. And in this case, in society's case, it was the pluralistic sort of uh, way of thinking. So in other words, 
uh, we're all equal, all viewpoints are equal. It's a kind of postmodern kind of thinking that it really, there's a lot of cultural stuff that goes into our biases and this sort of thinking then, you know, affected our thinking around the environment that we can't, you know, even though we are, we're always striving for achievement, we have to think about the costs of that achievement on the earth and the environment, the sort of unspoken costs of our engine of capitalism and so on. And so the response to that then becomes this sort of pluralistic thinking. Now that's what's kind of dominated the intellectual scene since the 60s and has been growing. And Hyde and others now talk about the, as we see this in tremendous progress in um, improving equality, like think about gay marriage, think about civil rights, think about women's rights. People will say, well, we're not there yet. Well, of course we're not. But, but there's been so much progress compared to the 50s say, or even the 60s say, uh, that it's, it's undeniable. And with that now starts to emerge these new problems of this way of thinking. And that is tribalism coming back, identity, uh, sort of common enemy identity politics, where we're saying, you know what, we got this far, let's push even further. White men at the top of dominance hierarchies are evil. And every other sort of racial and ethnic and gender group ought to be opposing these guys and their privilege. And we ought to be teaching young, you know, uh, kids about, you know, their privilege and checking their privilege and understanding that because they're privileged, they should feel bad about it and so on and so and so forth. And, and, and then you start having problems relating to that. You have this stuff that's happening on campus where these fragile children, because we've overparented them, we've given them social media where they hurt each other, we've uh, you know tried to keep them overly safe and, and have, have robbed them of free play and instead put them in front of a phone where they can hurt each other through social media. And this is what young girls do, is they create, create this relational aggression where they, they're just as aggressive as boys, it's just boys are physically aggressive. They wanna punch you and bully you physically. But the, the data seems to show that girls use relational aggression. They'll destroy your reputation online. They will create anonymous accounts where they can hurt other girls and say, oh, this is what she does. And we didn't invite her to the party for this and this and that. And then they're stuck inside instead of out playing and learning how to relate to other human beings. And as we see, as Hate, Hyde and others have pointed out, we now have an epidemic of increasing suicide rates in young girls. Like it's unconscionable what's happening. And I, I, I think there's no good Nobody has a 100% explanation for this, but this idea that it, it, con it concurrently uh, coincides with the rise of social media, that many of the people who have built social media won't let their own kids use it because they know it's gamed to trigger our sort of uh, tribalism and our, our um, you know, slot machine mindset of intermittent reward and, it, it, you know, click and take our attention. And as a result, now we have this, you know, generation of very fragile uh, children, And so we're seeing the problems towards the tail end of the pluralistic uh, society development. And this is fine. This is a sign of progress. The thing is, what's not okay is if we don't address those problems, we don't start thinking about them. So now we're starting to see new ideas emerge where it's real multiculturalism, where we can have debates among different ideas without villainizing each other, without believing these untruths of, you know, everybody's all good or all bad. And, and, and But we're going through this period where we are suffering through a lot of polarity and a lot of um, difficulty. So how does this relate to medicine? Let's take the same concepts and apply them to healthcare. And let's take the concepts of like these levels of development. So we started out in the 20th century with health 1.0. Health 1.0 
was a different world. We had different tools. We had different mindset. We had different relationships with our healthcare people. So doctors were at the top of a dominance hierarchy. Uh, they were trained in a very old school sort of Socratic method where it's about memorizing a bunch of stuff and kissing the ring and fealty to authority. And it's a very kind of militaristic hierarchical training. And when they are with their patients, it is an unobstructed relationship between two people. There's not a lot of bureaucracy in between. This is Health 1.0 in the 20th century. Uh, they're billing fee for service, so the, the technical structures around them are encouraging them to do stuff to patients. Um, and there's not a lot, the science was starting, but it wasn't amazing. There wasn't a lot of evidence-based medicine, randomized control trials, those kind of things. Uh, it was a lot of intuition, and it was a lot of touch, and it was a lot of physical exam, and it was a lot of ritual, and it was a lot of placebo, honestly. They just didn't know it. And so as a result, Physicians had a lot of latitude. Um, they had a lot of satisfaction. They had a lot of societal respect because they held all the cards to some degree. There wasn't an internet. There wasn't you know this sort of empowered patient movement. And there also wasn't a whole lot that they could do. So just the authority of them being in the room was a big deal. So that worked really well in 20th century medicine to a good degree because it fit the sort of societal mold of the time, which was not particularly progressive, and it, and it fit the amount of scientific understanding we had. So they were really good at giving antibiotics, really good at giving vaccines, and those were very successful, starting to get good at surgery, understanding the mechanisms of disease. So what ends up happening though, you start pushing up like any development, you push up against the limits of that system and problems start to emerge. Now, since healthcare, I will argue, is an anti-fragile system, or at least should be, as these challenges start to arise, healthcare adapts. It doesn't fall apart. It adapts to the particular challenges, memes, and thinking of its time. And you could argue it does it slowly and it lags right? And I think that's true, but it does adapt. And so do its constituents, which are humans and technology. So what was the response? What were the failures? What were the problems that started to happen in Health 1.0? Well, it's pretty clear that you have things like a lot of unnecessary testing, a lot of unnecessary procedures, because when you incentivize unregulated individuals and say, you can do all these things and you'll get paid for them without question from insurance companies, and you disintermediate the patient from it. In other words, insurance companies are, are paying the bill. Patients don't yet feel that pinch in the 20th century early on. If they have insurance, if they have you know Medicare, or if they're with an employer, they're disintermediated from the true cost of care. Costs start to skyrocket. Uh, and uh, uh, nobody's disincentivized from doing stuff. In fact, the opposite. So end of life suffers because it's much more lucrative to put you in the hospital and torture you until you die than it is to put you on hospice and do the right thing for you if that's your wish. And um, then you have this sort of paternalistic, male-dominated, white male-dominated uh, guild of physicians in the old days. And it, it really was that, right? And my mother was one of the early women in healthcare, you know, in 1970 something, she's in residency, coming as a international medical graduate from India. Uh, and, you know, she told me it was, it's, it was a struggle. 
uh, you know, because it really was a boys club. You know, people are smoking at the nurse's station. It's a totally different game. And on top of that, you know, with the costs going up and new technology emerging where patients can have access to information that used to be exclusively the purview of doctors, you know, the internet, um, the early internet, et cetera, lots of forces started to look at healthcare and you start to see the first responses that are the fits and starts of what we will call health 2.0. And I would argue maybe health 2.0 started when Medicare started doing a different payment model and started looking at uh, you know managed care options and things like that starting in the 80s and late 70s and seeing this sort of shift. And now what you start to see is a shift towards more business-oriented practices where uh, large systems start to swallow up, you know, medical groups where, you know, instead of doctors dominating everyone else on the team, you know, making nurses stand up and give them the chart and get them coffee and make, you know, and, and wear these white uniforms and so on. Now everybody is more, okay, now we all are more um, commoditized. We're more equalized. We're run through a process that work for business, which is an assembly line optimization like Lean or Six Sigma, something like that, where we're trying to optimize these processes. We're using electronic health records where it's like, well, everybody else is using technology now. Health 2.0 says, well, the new paradigm is technology, so let's use that. But it's optimized for the current payment model, which is cover your butt, document everything, bill clicks and clicks and clicks for, for, uh, worth of fee for service still. So you're getting you know, that technology that now doesn't really serve patient relationship, but serves this new paradigm in Health 2.0. But you have many wonderful things like randomized control trials, evidence-based medicine, and very bad things, which is trying to apply those indiscriminately to everybody when in fact there are unique individuals in front of us. Um, the second thing that's, that's problematic is in pushing productivity and relative value units and uh, throughput in hospitals, we've lost the one major thing that Health 1.0 was really good at, which is the time spent in relationship. The idea that you could be there as an authority figure or somebody who knows what they're talking about and provide comfort and a placebo-like healing effect that generates trust. That's been eroded because we're too busy looking at computers and not looking at our patients. We're too busy trying to survive and not busy trying to thrive in healthcare, uh, trying to really connect with the fact that this is a transcendent calling. So what happened in 2.0 is we jettisoned a lot of what was good and beautiful in 1.0 in favor of what was efficient and what was adaptable to the current economic climate, which is, well, we're trying to control costs that never really worked. We're trying to increase throughput and see more patients with less resources. So let's do X, Y, and Z. And in the end, we ended up with a new, a brand new set of problems that emerge in Health 2.0. And since medicine is an anti-fragile system, when those problems emerge, uh, the system responds and it, it changes. So what are the problems and, and issues that are emerging now? Well, costs are still high because we never really got rid of fee-for-service. We never figured out how to do well 
financially while doing good for our patients, in other words, improving outcomes, because we don't address the social determinants of health, which are a huge piece of it. We don't focus on prevention and primary care. It's still only 5% of our total healthcare spend. We don't train our doctors um, as well in terms of prevention and general medicine, but we focus on specialty care, which is wonderful, but there's too many specialists, too many hospitals, too many urgent cares, not enough prevention, not enough good nutrition, not enough education, not enough improving poverty and improving work opportunities for our patients, improving food education, improving food access. None of those things we do. And then of course, we also don't hold patients accountable for their choices. And some of these things are just poor education combined with bad choices. And we have no good mechanism for handling that. So what ends up happening is still expensive. And we still have a huge amount of readmissions and a huge amount of chronic disease that costs, you know, 80% of our healthcare dollars chronic disease, the 20% that have chronic disease. And end of life care is poorly done. So all these problems, which we talk about all the time on the show, are coming to a head as we wind up the tail end of the wave that was health 2.0. And at the apex, the crest of this wave is a burgeoning crisis that will cause the emergence of health 3.0. And that crisis is a human crisis. It is the crisis that comes from the moral injury, as Wendy Dean and Talbot and others have talked about, that comes from the moral injury of putting good people who care deeply about humans, who went into this with a passion, who sacrificed a lot of their youth to become medical professionals, when you put them in a system that doesn't seem compatible with doing the right thing for patients. When they're so busy doing paperwork and being a data entry clerk that they don't get to be present with a human being who's suffering. And their goal from the beginning was to relieve that suffering, improve human well-being and flourishing and suffering. That's what we do in medicine, it's a calling. And that was, that was taken from us by a system that injures us morally because we know what we're supposed to do and we know we can't do it. We know that cost drives everything. We know that profit is a huge motive and it tears us apart inside. And so what ends up happening is 60% of doctors won't recommend the career to their children. And everybody across the spectrum of care, and our tribe represents pretty much everybody in healthcare and beyond, they are all saying that they've never, you know, I, shan't, I can't say all, a large majority say they've never seen it so bad. That tells me that there's a burgeoning crisis on the crest of the end wave of health 2.0 that says, okay, our problems have now become such that they are gonna trigger a new emergent or the collapse of the system. Now, I've already said, I don't think healthcare is fragile. I don't even think it's resilient. I think it is anti-fragile, which means adversity will make it stronger and better over time if we allow that to happen and if we optimize to have that happen. So inevitably, the response to Health 2.0 and its failures in an anti-fragile system will be the emergent in waves, back and forth, overlapping with 2.0 and 1.0 that still exists. It will be the emergence of 3.0. Now, what is health 3.0? Health 3.0 is a unique emergent, and I think it parallels what we're gonna see in society 
in the next wave of societal emergence, where society suddenly recognizes, oh, you know what? Yes, there are, uh, we should all have equal opportunity to succeed. We should not uh, function in dominance hierarchies where we abuse others in a patriarchal or paternalistic or any kind of dominance way. I mean, there are plenty of um, more uh, uh, female nurse hierarchies where younger nurses are abused in these hierarchies. So it's not something that's relegated to men alone. But it, it does need to look at, you know, and one thing I forgot to mention about 1.0 is that there was a lot of racial bias, there was a lot of economic bias, there were a lot of geographic bias in 1.0 that, that dragged into 2.0. So in 3.0, they say, yeah, just like in society, those biases, we know they exist, we're gonna try to overcome them by equalizing opportunity, but not necessarily equalizing outcome, because that's very hard to do. You give people opportunity. You level the playing field so everyone can compete and then become good at whatever their competence hierarchy is. And so in, in I think in society, we're gonna look back at this era of identity politics and this glitch of tribalism that's resurgent and say, oh, that was silly, and this polarized politics and go, yes, and all viewpoints have some validity. And, and we're assuming these are good people all trying to do the right thing. And that's an assumption that isn't made in our current environment, but it should be. And that we're gonna try to grow our rational discourse and understand our emotions better without knee-jerk identifying with them. You know, and social media has been very bad for allowing that to happen. It has solidified and codified and catalyzed our innate human tribalism in a way that's very, very harmful. And again, I think we use social media on our uh, strategies in a more thoughtful way, but I'm biased to think that, so maybe I'm wrong. But the idea that social media has, has made this worse. So the new emergent in society is a more integral way of thinking. It's yes and. A lot of these structures are true. There are real hierarchies in the world. They shouldn't be dominance hierarchies. They should be competence hierarchies. Everybody should be challenged and try to be the best person they can. We should not, we should overcome uh, racial and, and gender biases while being able to talk about real differences between say genders and aptitudes among individuals without being vilified for doing that. Like we should study these things. We should grow our rational thinking and our scientific discourse and our political discourse. And so those things are gonna happen. They're gonna happen in uh, society, and uh, you know, and along with that will come a kind of a different type of uh, spirituality too. I think more people are going to start to uh, f discover, you know, introspection and meditation, and whether it's you know a, a type of prayer if you're uh, Christian, whatever it is. But it's more of an introspective understanding of of who we are and our place in the universe, and that that's part of that. It has to be a part of that. We ignore that at our peril. You know, end of life people understand uh, the spiritual dimensions of human beings better than a lot of us do, and we ignore it, and I think it hurts our patients, because every patient's coming with their own needs, even if they're you know, uh, an atheist like me, they may come and say, you know, but I have a, I have a different set of spiritual and existential needs that, that you're ignoring, you know, because you're a scientist. So in healthcare, that emergent parallel is this, yes and. Health 1.0 had beautiful things. It had a deep human relationship. We recognize that humans are unique and that there is an internal component to their experience, their conscious experience, which we've ignored. We try to reduce everything to cellular structures. That's one thing about Health 2.0. It is reductionist. It says everything can be reduced to electrons, atoms, 
impulses and drugs. And anybody who's actually practiced for any amount of time knows that this is bullshit. In fact, I recently had a call with one of my old colleagues and, and she was telling me, you know what I've noticed the longer I do medicine, most of the stuff we do doesn't work. A lot of it's harmful. And it's the sitting with patients, holding their hands, talking to them that has this huge effect. And why is that? Because there's an interior dimension to human beings that we cannot ignore. Who's taking advantage of it? The alternative medicine industrial complex, you know, the naturopaths, those people understand already that humans are wired this way, that this is a part of who we are. We have not understood it in Western medicine and it has harmed us. It has destroyed our credibility with certain people and it has started to erode our ability to actually improve outcomes and understand what's going on. So Health 3.0 says, yes, 2.0 wasn't right about that. 1.0 did have an understanding of the relationship. Let's bring it back. All healthcare is local. All healthcare is personal and unique to the individual. And we need to give space, time, resources, autonomy to clinicians to practice that way. So that means really getting to know your patient's story, listening to their story, right? We hardly get to do that anymore. The patient is telling you what's wrong with them and we haven't been able to listen. So bringing that space back, which means you have to be paid differently, means you have to be paid you know, I've advocated, and Robbie Pearl recently in a Forbes article wrote about my opinions on, you know, a flat fee with some cost savings. There's a million ways to pay for medicine, but fee for service in primary care, say, just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense at all. You should be paid to do the right thing for patients, not to do things to patients. So in Health 3.0, the idea is you get time back with your patients, but it's different than 1.0. Now we have technology. Now we have empowerment of patients. Now we have the internet. Now we have artificial intelligence that's growing. We have these other tools that can be brought to bear. So we are technology enabled. We are evidence informed. So we have all the access to the evidence, but we're never evidence enslaved. In other words, we're not compelled to do something according to click boxes, but we are compelled to know what the best practices are and understand when we should deviate from them. And right now we have very few mechanisms to do that. You know, Institute for Healthcare Improvement, we had a um, Dr. Rifkin from MCG Health on the show talking about ways to decrease unexplained variation in care. In other words, why should an outcome for an appendix be different here than it is here? It should be the same, which means we're, we're missing some common threads of what we should do. And then also having the autonomy and the ability to, to deviate from those common threads when our patient requires it, when that unique human being in front of us requires, requires it. That is health 3.0 in a nutshell, is that balance between 1.0's clinician autonomy and leadership and relationship and unique patient with 2.0's technology and process improvement and quality improvement and reduction in care variation and uh, tools along those lines, technology, electronic records that can be better. But then there's an emergent in 3.0 because you combine that with financial incentives that uh, that really allow and promote you to do well financially by doing good for patients. And part of the structure of 3.0 is a team-based structure. Now, some people will say, well, I'm just fine out in my private practice and I don't have a team. Yeah, you do. You have a nurse, you have a MA, you have uh, people that you call that are your consultants. That's your team. It doesn't matter how you structure it. These 
These folks are glued together with technology, with human relationships, and they provide the lift that flies your plane. You cannot do it by yourself. And that means also empowering people that maybe in, in historical terms have been at the bottom of dominance hierarchies, like health coaches who maybe don't have specific medical training but are really good at developing relationships, motivating patients, going out to the community because they become they come from the community that they serve, empowering them to do a lot of the heavy lifting of helping to manage the social determinants of health, using licensed clinical social workers and therapists and counselors and psychiatrists to manage the behavioral health issues that are so problematic, addressing through advocacy, grassroots movements and political action which I think healthcare people are, have been remiss in doing, the bigger societal issues of mental health, social media, um, you know, free play, making it a crime to arrest someone for letting their kid go out and play unsupervised. Come on, dude, really? Things like this are part of Health 3.0. It's a broader kind of activism that doesn't wallow in you know, tribalism and identity politics and all this other stuff. 3.0 is, is again a collaborative living organism that repersonalizes medicine with the help rather than the obstruction of technology. And it's a new emergent that's coming. And that means that individuals get support so they have the tools and the resources and the autonomy to do their job at the top of their education in a team in service of the patient while supporting each other. It sounds like a bunch of platitudes, but here's the thing. I have fucking seen it happen. And this is where I get really pissed off. People are like, you're always talking about health 3.0 and I will never see it happen. And your clinic went out of business, turntable health. And I'm like, okay, first of all, how dare you talk about my clinic? And yes, you're right, it did go out of business. Why? Because we were too early. And I have seen this shit work. I have seen this shit work. Focus on prevention with primary care, check. We did that at Turntable Health. Make it a flat fee that an insurer can pay, an employer can pay, or a patient can pay for unlimited all-you-can-treat access with no copays. Why? Because copays obstruct the ability to see patients when they are well, to form relationships with patients. This is a fucking relationship. It is not a transaction. And this is where you get pissed off because you see the failures of 2.0. And I get particularly triggered because when you see 3.0 humming like we did at Turntable and it continues to hum in bright spots around the country, our partners, Iora Health, ChenMed, there are lots of groups, CareMore, there are lots of groups that are building Health 3.0 in their own way in a local level because all healthcare is local. I get pissed off when people say it can't be done because I've seen it work and it could have worked. You know, we're doing it here in Las Vegas. We're early, we're in downtown Vegas. Vegas is a total shithole for healthcare. It really, and no offense to my friends who practice here and I, I practice here. It is 1.0 struggling to become 2.0 and trying to do 3.0 too early it's, it's an overwhelming process, but once you see it happen, you go, God damn, like there's no other way to do this. This is absolutely a, a, a perfect example, a postcard of how things can be. So we had health coaches, we had social worker, we had pharmacists from the, from the pharmacy school rotating through and leading the team in medication management. Everybody teaches each other in the huddle. This is a 3.0 sort of 
holarchical structure where, yeah, everybody's at the, in a competence hierarchy. So in other words, that pharmacy resident is not going to be as good as a doctor at managing chronic disease, but they're going to be really good at, you know, teaching us how to how to manage warfarin levels and interactions. And so they're at the top of their competence hierarchy and continuing to improve. And so they can teach others. Nobody dominates. Everybody teaches. You huddle and you round on patients that aren't coming in in a, fo- in a hope to prevent them from having to come in. You reach out proactively. You look at social determinants of health. You look at shopping lists that patients are having. And who does this? Health coaches, because they have the bandwidth to do this. Then the doctor gets to practice at the top of their motherfucking game. Like the true shit that they train to do that only doctors can do at the top of their game. Um, that's what they are then freed to do, which means they find a joy and a passion and a purpose in their reconnected uh, um, relationship with with patients along with a team that supports them. And then the patients are transformed because you're not saying don't go on the internet and learn about stuff. You gotta bring it in. We'll spend some time going through it. You don't wanna come in? Let's go where you are. Let's have a Skype call. You know, Sign this HIPAA form. Says you don't mind, we're gonna do that. Let, let, let's text, let's email. Let's go where what's convenient for you. Why should we impose that you come to see us just so we can fucking bill you? That is horseshit, you guys. And that's how we practice now. 3.0 is gonna be like, hell no, that's not gonna happen. Go where the patient needs you to be. It's not hard to do, really. It's really not. So we talked about social assurance, we talked about telehealth, we talked about team-based care, we talked about multidisciplinary care, we talked about moral injury. So in a system like that, the moral injury comes from having to deal with the rest of the fucking 2.0 system. That's where our staff were really pissed off. Like our own patients, we loved that care. We could do that, we could spend time, but when you had to send them to a specialist or send them to the hospital, that's when shit fell apart and you started to hurt because you'd go, God, now we sent them to the cardiologist. The cardiologist is conditioned in this town to just fucking cath them for their GERD or for their anxiety. And what we really wanted was reassurance from a specialist so they could come back and say, no, it's not those things. We don't need to cath you. We don't need to subject you to die. We don't need to subject you to you know potential for coronary perforation or whatever you know rare uh, occurrence can happen. We need somebody who cares about you, who's connected to us to have that conversation with you. And then you can come back and go, okay, let's address what's really the root cause of this, right? And guess what? We have a yoga, we have a meditation class every you know Thursday in our teaching studio. We have exercise classes. We have a teaching kitchen so we can teach you to cook, give you the tools. That's fucking 3.0. And, and, that's, and that's what I saw. So why do you think I'm here sitting here in the studio with this fucking mic in my face telling you this shit because I have seen it work. And if I don't do something about it, if, if we together as a movement don't start to catalyze real change, then we are disrespecting the, the very nature of our calling and the anti-fragile nature of our healthcare system. We can make it stronger through these challenges. And what emerges will be way bigger than the sum of the previous parts. I promise you this because I've seen it and I continue to see it all around the country. It is emerging. And the people send me messages every day about ways it's emerging. And then they send me messages about ways it's not, right? So all this being said, 
just as in society, so as in healthcare. We are anti-fragile humans. We will get stronger. Health 3.0 will emerge in fits and start, and it has to because of the failings of the previous wave, which were appropriate for its time, are no longer appropriate, and we're out evolving them, and we're gonna move forward. And with your help, we can do this. So this is the conversation I did not, didn't necessarily plan to have, but it's a conversation I had, and I start cursing a lot at the end because I get really pissed off. Um, yeah, that's pretty much what I have to say. So what I want you to do is leave your thoughts and comments. I'll put my email in the description for the podcast. Facebook people know, they can leave a comment there. You can become a supporter. By the way, I prioritize responses to my supporters. So I get a little thing in my email box that unless you've turned off the badge that says you're a supporter and when I get a message from you, I will at least make some attempt to specifically respond because I get hundreds of messages a day so I can't respond to every single one. Uh, so that's another advantage of being a supporter. Um, please review this podcast. Tell me what my th what your thoughts are. And uh, we'll be back, I think, tomorrow. We're gonna be interviewing Amy Baxter, physician who is also an inventor, an entrepreneur, and is working on solving the opioid pain crisis as well as the crisis of needle phobia in children and adults. So stay tuned, because that's coming tomorrow. All right, now I sound like a radio announcer. Hello, listen to the mellifluous tones of Z-Dog MD, and we out, peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just gotta ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community really. And we support and love each other and share again through our own experience how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.